0: the quantum mechanics
1: yes we are the quantum mechanics the paranormal podcast for the believers the doubters and everybody in between paranormal weather yeah, it's a bit nippy is a bit nippy uh, it's uh, it's also been a bit wet and a bit dry right is it a sasquatch vigorously towering themselves down yes or maybe fattening up for the coming winter i've been fattening up for the coming winter (laughs) i've been doing it i started in 2014
0: i've been doing it for most of my life
1: (laughs) i feel very prepared for winter now
0: um we got a new patreon as well haven't we that we haven't mentioned yet
1: yes we have theresa gunderson thank you so much oh that's so brilliant thank you
0: for joining the patreon program we really appreciate it um early access to the podcast ad free and little other bits and pieces that we post on there so um not only do if you join do you help us out but uh you do get something in return so that's great if you fancy becoming a patreon go to patreon.com
1: forward slash tqm pod there's the plug and if you are hearing this early, that is because you are a patron, and thank you for being one. Yeah, I can't get my head around that. No, me. I know it's so. It's so weird. we've got a little <laughs> bit ahead of ourselves in recording. Yeah, so we're all completely
0: now, confused. We are. We?
1: So Teresa, I know you've been a patron for a couple of weeks, but Christmas is coming up, and it means we have to get ahead of ourselves, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise we'll be recording on Christmas Day. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I before
0: we crack on for today's episode, I I just um. I've been noticing a bit of a trend. You know you get these little trends in paranormal news that are in the kind of tabloids or mainstream press? Sure, yeah. The one I've noticed at the moment,
1: there's a lot of alien skeletons about, aren't there? There's so many alien skeletons, yes, yeah. Uh, A a lot of them from Peru. Yeah, there's a lot of South American (laughs) skeletons out there. It was obviously a hotbed of, of alien activity. It is. I think we'll cover that one... When um, when it, the the noise has died down a bit, as far as I can tell, people can't work out whether it really, really is truly, truly yeah a, an alien uh, because they did pre- present it to a congressional uh, committee basically yeah or as I've heard, it's also had potentially llama bones rearranged. So look, I'm not calling it. I haven't investigated. I've just heard
0: yeah, but it's probably something we do need to get into though, isn't it? It is at some it point. Is. Well, it does segue us quite nicely um, for the theme of today because it is a bit UFO-themed, and it came about... I don't know if you're the same, Ben, but when it comes to UFO encounters, I tend to think about the United States. Oh, rather, yeah. You've got the Roswell incident, Area 51, Betty and Barney Hill, Phoenix Lights. But it's not just the volume of... Cases that makes America the UFO capital of the world. There is something about US UFO encounters that, for me, makes them somehow feel bigger and better than maybe their British counterparts, and I'm not quite sure why.
1: I think probably the glamour of, like, I guess those places where they happen, like Groom Lake, Roswell, New Mexico... They sound impossibly romantic to somebody who grew up in Sirencester.
0: Yeah, I think that's true, and and those American stories do seem to have a bit of a Hollywood feel
1: about them as well, don't they? Do. they? Yeah, a some of, of them, them feel like they're produced for Hollywood almost. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. And I was thinking, well, there are amazing UFO stories from the UK. Somehow, they don't feel as big screen as the American cases. They well, they feel kind of British. <laughs>
1: Well, maybe, to give them a bit of a British buzz, maybe this bit we should have some Pathé News music behind us?
0: Yeah, something. Something very British-y. But when you look deeper into the British UFO encounters, they, they are just as intriguing and exciting as the American ones. So I wanted to feature some of these very British UFO cases today and work out why they feel so British.
1: Well, rather, I will um, i don't know how to be more British. I'll stiffen my upper lip. Yeah, well, if you can get yourself a cup of tea, maybe toast yourself a crumpet, and we'll begin. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, I've got a decaf coffee. That'll, that'll, that'll oh, stand in as the you're, tea.
0: You're letting the side down. Let's start with a story. Uh, let's start with the story of John and Gloria Mann. Now, this story was featured in the British press in the late 1970s. And, Ben, it takes place in our own backyard of Oxford, or Oxfordshire.
1: Oh, really? Yes.
0: On June the 19th, 1978, John Mann and his wife, Gloria, their two daughters, Natasha and Tanya, and John's sister, Frances Farrow, left the home of John's mother at 9.30 in the evening. They were driving through Stanford-in-the-Vale near Wantage.
1: Oh, <laughs> I know it well, Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: There was little traffic on the road, so John had no doubt that they'd get home by 11.15pm. But around 1015 as the car mounted a rise in the road at Stanford in the Vale, John and Francis spotted a brilliant white light in the sky about a mile ahead. They drove on for a mile and the light didn't change its position. A red light started to flash on and off on the right side of where the white light was, which now seemed to be coming straight at them. John put on the handbrake of the car and leapt from the car with the engine still running. As he looked up, suddenly the moon was eclipsed by a pitch blackness and John could hear a noise which he described as like a mixture of a swishing sound and the scoring noise of a train's wheels against a track.
1: That's interesting. We've heard that before in some cases.
0: Yeah, there's quite a lot in this case, actually, which we've heard before, which really struck me. The moon, so this thing was covering the moon, the moon reappeared and he could make out a vast circular shape over 100 feet up in the sky, moving very slowly. It came directly over the car and then drifted over trees on the right into a field, then the noise stopped. John got back into the car and had driven about 100 yards, this is weird, when he realised they were no longer on the familiar road home. Somehow they had been transported to a completely different road.
1: Uh, yeah, again, very familiar, very familiar.
0: Yep. So the, he describes the road was no longer straight, but wound up and down small rises with sharp bends. This is weird as well. He says... I had a strange feeling that if I took my hands off the wheel, the car would drive itself.
1: Yeah, um, I was listening to a case about this in Italy um, the other day. So um, in this particular case, the person was so convinced their car was being regularly elevated that they rigged up a system of wires that if the car was picked up by the body it would break the wires, right? and the wires broke. Wow, so and that,
0: this was happening on multiple occasions. This was happening on
1: multiple occasions, yeah. And wow. this person was driving to places in impossibly short amounts of time. Things that would should take an hour were taking 20 minutes, and his friends were sort of going, how did you get here, you were only there 20 minutes ago. So yeah, I have heard this before, quite, quite recently, but it was a case that happened in the 70s, that one
0: right okay well this is this is 70s as well um so uh, we've got a bit of time loss coming up soon so they drove onwards through several towns with this ball of brilliant white light pacing the car it was about 200 feet to the right of them this is very interesting as well whenever they approached houses or villages the light would disappear only to reappear once they were back on deserted roads
1: Oh, man. I would be almost tempted to stay in... I mean, I suppose you can't, but... I mean, that um, th- that sort of level of consciousness and um, observation is unnerving in itself.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, as the car entered Sirencester, the lights disappeared and they didn't see it again during the last 20 minutes of their journey. Second
1: mention of Sirencester. How weird. I didn't know you were going to do a story yeah, yeah. which mentions Sirencester. Yeah, there you go. Wow, OK. So, Big up to Siren Sester, yeah
0: Yeah, well you can't get more British than Siren Sester, do you? <laughs> so a bit of time lost coming up. When they arrived home and looked at the clock, it was 12.15, an hour later than they should have arrived. Now the next day, John decided to retrace their journey, but couldn't find the mysterious road or any landmarks from the night before. They later returned to the field, where they thought the object had landed, but they found nothing. On the Thursday following the incident, John examined the lower part of his chest, which had been itching all day, and found a red band of heat spots. The Hmm. following day, Gloria, his wife, had a similar rash on her left arm and leg from the knee down.
1: When you say heat spots, like in a regular pattern?
0: Yeah, that was the implication that I took from it. There wasn't much detail on... There wasn't any
1: photos or anything of this, so I don't know. Because we've seen some before, which is like... um... Almost like air from a heat vent Yeah, yeah, has it, burnt them. It yeah. sort of sounds like that's what I'm imagining.
0: Yeah. Well, Fra- Frances, who was John's sister who was in the car, had been scratching her head and neck the day before. John had found these things on his body. Um, so she had something, but there was nothing on the children. Frances also had a three-inch oval bruise on the outer side of her right knee. John and Gloria noticed similar dark blue marks in the same area on their legs, but within a few days, the marks vanished.
1: Interesting. Wow. I mean, I say wow, I mean, we have heard it all before, but... This is very close to home. Yeah, as, as previously noted, this is not impossibly romantic. Well, we've
0: we've driven these roads. We've right? driven
1: these roads. I mean, yeah. I was not on those roads in the seventh. Well, maybe I was as a baby, but I know exactly the sorts of roads. I mean, they are very bendy and windy yeah. around there. I mean, it's also worth noting. It is a, it is a weird area for those who don't know it. It's kind of on the cusp of the Wiltshire Downs, the Salisbury Downs, the Salisbury Plains, I should say, which is very military. But also contains places like Avebury and Stonehenge. Mm. So that is very close. You've also got um, the Harwell Research Laboratories there. And you've got, where well, it's not there anymore, but what used to be one of the biggest coal-fired power stations in the country yeah. is there yeah. as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of, kind of, uh, sort of, in inverted commas, stuff in that area yeah definitely and stuff
0: that has been associated with other ufo encounters as well. right right well the next the, after these marks vanished the next week their child natasha woke up in the night confused and upset it was the first of three or four nightmares in which she saw several strange people with funny eyes staring at her
1: <laughs> she was in siren session. <laughs>
0: <Yeah. laughs> after a couple of weeks the nightmares stopped At the end of June, John had a dream in which he saw himself driving along the mysterious winding road. He stopped in front of a brilliant beam of yellowish light coming from the sky, and they all walked into the beam and floated up into some sort of craft. Mm. They walked along a corridor until they reached three identical doors and John entered one, Francis the other, and Gloria and the children the third. The room was dark, but John heard a voice telling him to sit, that he was going to have some sort of medical, and so were the others. He was aware of something attaching itself to his right leg below the knee. About five minutes, the leg clamp retracted and he returned to the corridor. The others came out and they all walked without speaking back to where they had entered. They then floated back down the shaft of light, got into their car and drove off couple of days later his sister revealed that she had had a very similar
1: dream it always well in this time it always appears to go back to medical experiments and they always they always puzzled me until when we looked at sort of more recent cases and people who sort of claimed to have an insight into this. It's the it's the part of the hybridisation programme. That's, yeah. that's, the, that's the terrifying bit of this, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, a few months later, John and Francis underwent hypnosis and more detail of their encounter was revealed. John recalled encountering three men wearing close-fitting metallic silver suits with balaclava-type helmets. They had pale complexions and pale blue eyes. One of them said in perfect English... Welcome to our ship. No harm will come to you. We wish to examine you. I'm not sure that that kind of sentence works, Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, that doesn't sound ominous in any way. All right,
0: right, then. (laughs) John stepped into a room with a sort of dentist chair in the middle. Two women came in and one strapped him into the chair while the other was pressing buttons on a desk. An intense beam of light shone on his face and one of the women pulled something black down from the ceiling. A woman's voice then woke him up and a man came into the room and spoke to the woman in a strange language. The women said their names were Achilleus and Cosentia, and the man's name was Anuxia. The man took John to the first room and about 50 people entered. Anuxia said that something was coming and they must move a short distance and then the floor seemed to tip to the left. Later, John was taken to a large room which Anuxia said was used for navigation and he was shown a film of Anuxia's home. The film showed a desolated landscape of boulders and rocks, a craft emerging from parting rocks and a six figures dressed in monk-like habits carrying a crate. Anuxia said the crate <laughs> was Sounds a-
1: like a Christmas perfume, <laughs>
0: Yeah. Anuxia said the crate was a coffin and the craft had come to collect the dead. The film ended and John went into another room where Francis, Gloria and the children were waiting. Francis recalls being taken into another room but remembers very little about the examination. A man named Uxulia, I'm not sure if that's the right pronunciation but I don't think he's going to complain. <laughs> if he does, we've
1: got a scoop.
0: Yeah, a man named Uxulia, who said he was an explorer pilot from the planet Janos, escorted her to a room where there were 15 to 20 other people. A panel on the wall lit up like a television screen. There were three planets on the screen, which he called Sarnia, Saturn, and Janos. He explained that Saturn had come too close to Janos and started to disintegrate and shower them with meteorites. A nuclear power station was hit by one and set off a chain reaction which devastated the remainder of their planet, Janos.
1: Oh, here we go. See, this is the 1970s anti-nuclear thing Thing happening. Yeah, Yeah, the 1970s is um, the era of nuclear power no thanks stickers.
0: Yeah, yeah. A coloured picture of a young blonde woman with a small boy and a girl flashed on the screen. Uxulia said they were his wife and children who had died during the nuclear explosion. He said that explorer ships from the master base ship had been sent to find a new home for their people and they would like to live on earth. Anuxia shook hands with John and kissed the woman on the cheek then indicated they should step out through the open hatch. Before they left, Anuxia said you must forget because you will be exploited. In time you will remember. We will meet again and you will know us.
1: And they might talk about you on a podcast. Yeah. I tell you who I do believe is the witnesses who saw something. What I don't believe is what those aliens being aliens. That is absolute... The fact they've all got names. Yeah. They have daughters, you know, they have sons and daughters. Children is what you call them. Yeah. Wives, um, a desolated planet, nuclear power that blew up. How, how are they powering the ship if they're using old-fashioned nuclear power stations? Yeah. What energy are they using to make the nuclear... Sorry, what energy are they using to make the ship work if it wouldn't be nuclear, I'm assuming? I mean, that would be a very daft way of powering an interstellar spacecraft. All of that sounds like um, either something pretending to be something else or a screen on top of something much more sinister.
0: Yeah, and I think also the thing that struck me, and I did a bit of Googling of the names just to see if I could come across any references. So, you know, some of the names used are the aliens are like, oh, well, there's a place in Sardinia that's got that name or whatever. But they also seem very... We've said, we've said this on the podcast before. They seem very... Like what you would call an alien if you were writing a sci-fi story
1: in in the 50s or 60s this is straight yeah. out of um, you know the uh, what's it Lost in Space it's yeah. absolutely out of that
0: Anuxia you know what I mean yeah
1: exactly it's the sort of woman that Captain Kirk would have a crush on yeah yeah exactly um, and she'd be exactly human but she'd have two very small differences on her head yeah you know yeah. this is I, I just don't buy it I don't buy it at all
0: yeah well, I was thinking that this is a very British UFO encounter, perhaps because it happened near where we live. It reminded me of the Travis Walton case, Fire in the Sky, but without the Hollywood kind
1: of shine to it. You yeah, know yeah, mean? definitely. Yeah. Um, firstly, the fact
0: <laughs> that they drove through Sirencester. <laughs> <laughs> There's a
1: great coffee shop
0: there. There really is. There really is. Maybe that's why the um, maybe that's why the UFO didn't fly there because it was yeah. getting a coffee. Yeah. Secondly, unlike Travis, uh, unlike the Travis case, you know that was all invasive probes and terror. Yes. The whole potential encounter on board this alien ship seemed, in comparison,
1: far more civilized, didn't it? Very civilized. But what is it? was showing you a film. They yeah,
0: always we- show you a film f- with a whole backstory, an informative documentary of their home planet. Um, Okay, I mean, I guess they did try and wipe their memories, but they said they were doing it to protect them from being exploited. So that seems a very British thing to do
1: as well. It's a very convenient thing to say.
0: Well, I, I, like you, then thought, Okay, let's take this from a sceptic point of view. And in my reading of it, this story really divides into two sections. There's the family reporting that they saw this strange object in the sky and that it followed them. Then they were on a road different from where they originally been. They'd lost time. They'd been a time slip. Some of them also had strange markings on their body, and they were, that that was kind of their first hand experience. But I think you've got to remember that the being taken on board the craft, being examined, meeting the aliens, gave them the story of why they were on Earth. That all came about in dreams or under hypnosis, and if we as we've covered before, that can be really problematic.
1: Yeah, really problematic. But also, um, there's an element of... If you have to get to it through there, it's like you have to assume the aliens don't know that you can and that they can't put in another uh, sort of mechanism to stop you coming up with the real goods. Yeah, yeah. I just... The whole thing seems preposterous.
0: Yeah, bizarre. The second very British UFO encounter takes us up to scotland Ben, and it has been called the incident at Decmont woods i don't know if you've heard of this no this is amazing um for me what gives it a very british feel is not necessarily what happened but the person that it happened to a man called robert taylor and as you'll see he's one of the most unlikely candidates for a ufo encounter so this incident was investigated by Malcolm Robinson, who we discussed on our episode about Bonnie Bridge UFO wave, if you remember. Oh, yes, yes, good one. And uh, yes. I think you've interviewed him, haven't you, in the
1: past? I believe so, yeah, yeah, many years ago.
0: So this event happened uh, just after, over a year uh, after the last story that we had from Oxford. It happened on November the 9th, 1979. So Robert Taylor was employed by the Livingston Development Corporation as a foreman forester and he was driving his pickup truck along with his dog Lara to an area of forest known as Dechmont. So it was a cold early morning, Taylor had to park up his truck and continue on foot into the forest as his truck was struggling in the muddy conditions. So around 10am Robert rounded a corner in the forest and was now in a clearing Robert knew this bit of the forest really well and on this cold morning he was out looking for stray sheep. I guess that's what you do as a forester,
1: right? Yeah, yeah.
0: He suddenly spotted a large dome-shaped object hovering above the grass. It was a vision he'd never encountered in his life. He described the object as dark grey all over, roughly textured and completely silent. It had a flange going around its (laughs) circumference and sticking up from this rim were several spikes. Robert actually described them as looking like propellers, but they didn't move.
1: Oh my goodness, you see we've got a um, like a steampunk UFO. Yeah, yeah. That was, this is my exact theory on this. Anyway, yes, yeah, sorry, I interrupted. Uh, well, it
0: gets more steampunky, actually. He also noticed above the flange several dark circular spaces, which he felt looked like windows. While transfixed on the object in front of him, Robert noticed that part of the object seemed to disappear... He could see the trees behind the hull of the object. Then the hull would solidify again. Then go translucent and solidify. That I started thinking um, very much about those kind of gravity propulsion systems that we've heard. Bob, from Lazar. Bob Lazar, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, but this was way before Bob Lazar's time.
1: Yeah, and uh, and also. <sighs> That would have sounded like, I think, peculiar technology in those times. But now we know, you know, you have um, fridge doors that become clear at the touch of a button. Right, right, yeah, yeah. The tap or, you know, the glasses I'm wearing change yeah, yeah. colour in the sun. But what, what do you say, this is his 50s? 70s. 70s. Oh, well, it would have still been sort of futuristic. It would have been as futuristic as like a digital watch. It would have been that level. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So the only sound was that of his dog next to him barking furiously. So if that wasn't weird enough, things got even more scary. This again, you'll, you'll, you'll pick up on this. Suddenly, what resembled Second World War sea mines dropped from beneath the main object and rushed towards him. Robert said the colour and texture of these spheres were the same as the main craft. As the spheres came towards him, their spikes made a strange sucking or plopping noise, he described it on, as, on the grass. Soon, both balls were either side of Robert, and a spike from each ball attached itself to each side of his trousers just below the pockets. He then felt himself being pulled with force towards the main craft. While this was happening, Robert smelt a powerful odor in the air, which he described as smelling like burning brake linings, an acrid smell he could taste in the back of his mouth. And we've covered that before when we've done the kind of supernatural UFO smells. Yeah, yeah, we have, yeah. The smell was accompanied by a sound similar to that of a cane swished through the air. It was at this point that Robert passed out. I'm not sure how they know this, but in the account I read, it was estimated that Robert was unconscious for around 20 minutes. When he awoke, he was initially unable to speak and had lost movement in his legs. He also had a dry throat, extreme headache, felt sick and had a burning sensation on his chin. After a few minutes he managed to crawl back to his truck, was unable to radio for help because his speech had not returned. His truck was stuck in the mud so he decided to walk back through the fields and woods to his house, arriving home at 11.15am. When Robert's wife first saw her husband she initially thought he'd been assaulted. Such was the state and distress he was in, plus his clothes were all torn and muddy. As his voice was beginning to return, Robert managed to tell his wife that he had seen a spaceship in the woods.
1: Mm. Okay, there's a lot there. Well, there's more.
0: Um, Oh. Much more. (laughs) Thinking he must be confused, his wife telephoned her husband's boss, Mr Malcolm Drummond, and also telephoned their local doctor, Mr Gordon Adams. It wasn't long before both arrived, and Robert proceeded to tell them what he'd encountered in the woods. Listening to this incredible tale unfold, both men were startled to hear Robert's description of what he'd encountered. Both men knew him well, well enough to state that Robert was not a teller of tall tales or would invent things just for the fun of it. They described him, Robert, as a sound and rational man, a man not prone to invention, a man with no interest whatsoever in flying saucers or men from Mars. That was not his agenda. After a preliminary examination, it was concluded that Robert was not suffering from any head injuries or neurological disorders. His blood pressure was normal and apart from a graze on his chin and signs of shock, he appeared fine. As a precaution, he was admitted to the local hospital for a full checkup. So while Robert was at the hospital, his manager Malcolm Drummond and some other forestry workers went to Decmon Woods to inspect the scene of the incident. An account of what they viewed was published in an article by Stuart Campbell, who was a UFO researcher. He said, surrounding the tracks were 40 holes exposing fresh earth. Each hole was about 10 centimetres across, no more than 10 centimetres deep. The holes did not have any particular shape and did not appear to have been made by an artefact or tool. The earth in the holes was not compressed. New growth in 1980 showed no sign of the marks nor any other defect. They also noticed two track line marks, so backing up his story about how he'd been dragged along. Now, the author and ufologist Malcolm Robertson interviewed Robert Taylor pretty soon after the incident. Robert took Robinson to the location of the incident. By this time, it had been roped off by the police. Before they left the site, So there there was another um, investigator with them called Andrew Collins. And interestingly, he said he'd seen a very similar case or heard of a similar case from South America. He said, this is his exact words, you know, Malcolm, I'm aware of a similar case to this one. It occurred in South America a few years back. A similar object was seen and also these two small spherical balls as well. But in that case, the difference was those two spherical balls rushed out from the larger object, then proceeded to explode in front of the witness. Thank goodness this didn't happen here. Goodness. Wow. And again, that's quite... um, That's quite punky, isn't it? Those balls and the description of them, I found. So I mentioned police tape roping off the area of the incident. So the police did investigate, including sending forensic experts to the scene, which I think was quite important. Yeah. And they also examined Robert's clothing. The police forensic expert examined the holes made in Robert's trousers, which Robert claimed were from the spikes of this strange orb. The expert concluded the holes were not made by burning and were likely achieved, this is interesting, by a strong mechanical pull upwards.
1: <laughs> right just as he described
0: yeah robert's underwear he was wearing long johns remember it was scotland it was mm. pretty cold mm. um were also torn they showed an s-shaped hole on the outside of the left leg which corresponded to the tear in robert's trousers this is fascinating as well the police concluded that robert had not fabricated the incident Detective Sergeant Ian Walk of Livingston Police was convinced of the testimony of Robert Taylor. He said that he had found Mr Taylor to have been a sound mind and never altered from his story. Detective Walk could not explain the marks left on the grass and the whole incident had left him completely baffled.
1: So um, why did the police get involved anyway?
0: Well, I think um, this guy who's a kind of just upstanding member of the community comes back and says i've been attacked by this thing you know and calls the wife calls the boss and the doctor and i think they just informed the police saying Look, this guy's something's happened to him can you go and check it out
1: right i see so they weren't sort of um he wasn't they didn't call the police because they thought this guy is lying no 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 um they, they were genuine genuinely worried for his health yeah right what, I, I see. and
0: what had gone on well should we look at There are some sceptical viewpoints or other explanations outside of a UFO encounter, and I guess a potential abduction. That's the kind of implication as well. There is a theory that Robert encountered a rare natural phenomenon known as black ball lightning, which can be caused by lightning striking the ground and then, I guess, forming into a ball. So that could explain the spheres, I guess. Now, there is another theory put forward by Stuart Campbell which I find a bit harder to get my head round, but this guy's a UFO investigator. He says that Robert, he believed, had seen a mirage of the planet Venus and that the strange mirage had caused Robert to suffer an epileptic seizure. Campbell wrote, I decided to try the astronomical hypothesis on the Livingston case. Despite the fact the incident occurred in broad daylight, the result was surprising. Um, This may mean something to somebody, but it doesn't mean a lot to me, but I'll say it anyway for those of you geekies out there. Venus, a magnitude of 3.7, lay at only 3 degrees altitude, 3 degrees, 13 minutes with normal refraction, on a bearing of 138 degrees, almost precisely the direction in which Taylor was looking. Moreover, Mercury was at 2 degrees, 15 minutes with a normal refraction, on a bearing of 139 degrees, i.e. they were in close conjunction. Could the incident have been initiated by the sight of Venus and Mercury? The close alignment of the two planets could have caused a superior mirage. This can result from atmospheric temperature inversions where cold air underlies warmer air. However, it is also the close proximity of the planet Mercury to Venus which also assists this mirage effect to become more prominent. Stewart goes on to speculate in his article that the inversion and the sudden brightening of such lights seen through inversions could appear to rush towards the observer, I guess explaining the idea of the two balls. Mm. They were two planets. Stuart believes they were in fact the balls where the planets Venus and Mercury, the spiky rods on these light planets were in actual fact caused by distortion in the eye. This resulted
1: in Robert having an epileptic seizure. Okay, I mean, that does sound credible, but what kind of... I mean, has this happened before? I mean, I'd like to know whether anyone
0: has... that (coughs) has
1: happened to somebody before. Was he known for having epilepsy? No, no. Mm. Mm.
0: Well, Robert Taylor himself dismissed those theories. Um, In a letter he wrote to the ufologist Malcolm Robinson in 1988, he said, I can still see everything that happened that morning just as if it were yesterday, so there is no way that any silly stories of ball lightning or Venus peeping over Deer Hill can change my mind. I remember, Malcolm, that you were up at Deckmont Woods the day after the incident and saw all the markings on the ground. Just think, if you'd been within 10 yards of this vehicle and were even in contact with part of it, all the research will make no difference. I don't expect to see
1: anything like this again. So he's convinced it's um, it's paranormal.
0: Yes, and there were also um, other reports from witnesses in the area who claimed to have seen UFOs on that morning.
1: Right, right. The the clothing thing is very weird. It, it strikes me as being very similar to that case of. Um, yeah. Uh, it was... I can't remember his surname, but... Stra- I can remember his surname. Strangely, it was Adamski, not that one, but the other right, one. Right, Who was found upon um, a, a pile of coal by the policeman.
0: Yes, I remember that story.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. it's been well covered. I think even the BBC have covered that one. But the fact that is that his clothes were... Absolutely pristine. Yeah. Um, when he could have, you know, when he should have been scrambling up coal and they should have been black. Yes. So this, this sort of, it made me think of that. I know it's a slightly different circumstance. Yeah,
0: but, but it's similar.
1: But they, th- this time, they tore his clothes. Usually, in these circumstances, they sort of remove people's clothes, then put them back on again. But sometimes you get the wrong person's clothes. Or the T-shirt's on back to front or something because the aliens aren't very good at redressing you. Yeah, yeah. But this is like... This just seems like an accident in the transfer.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, I think what's really intriguing about this story, aside from the incredible description that Robert gave, um, is Robert himself. So here we've got a 61-year-old man, absolutely no interest in UFOs or science fiction. Um, He works at the Scottish equivalent of a park ranger... He's in a location he's totally familiar with, you know, just looking for stray sheep, and he has this incredible experience. I mean, he didn't want the media attention that came after the encounter. In fact, there's this great bit where he checks himself out of the hospital but all, all the tests could be completed he'd prom- his, his, because he'd promised his wife that he was going to take her to the seaside that weekend. Oh, man. He just wanted to get on with his life. So you've got this rational guy whose testimony was deemed genuine and credible by the police, Mm. still sticks to his story and doesn't accept the alternative theories that were put forward.
1: Yeah, and he stuck with that story for the rest of his life, I assume. Yep. Yeah, these things are so common and the details are so incredibly strange that I suppose in... The reason why these things haven't got turned into, you know, lifetime miniseries or whatever is just because there's a tendency in Britain, it's quite hard to um, explain, but particularly in the 70s and 80s, people would go, oh, yeah, yeah, they, you know that fella? He got taken by a before yeah, Did yeah. he? You should buy him a pint, he'll tell you.
0: Well, also, you know, this guy Robert, you can see it, you know, from a Hollywood casting point of view... You know, if you go with the Travis case, you're gonna be going, We gotta have Ryan Gosling. You know, this guy you'd have
1: to have Pete Pothelswaite. Do you know what I mean? It's very British. <laughs> it is, it is. It's Coronation Street does alien reductions. Yeah, yeah. But um yeah, it's it's those all of those bits are so curious because we don't see those same tropes happening today. We see something other. We don't yeah, you know yeah. we've you know, we keep talking about it. We have craft that looks steampunk we have um warnings about nuclear power nuclear weapons and then now we have this is your daughter this is your son um it's yeah, very yeah, much yeah. more it, it focuses on the breeding program yep. now i wonder again whether this is deeply rooted in like uh, is this people's sort of concern about immigration and yeah uh, that you know, the, those sorts of troubling things that people talk about, yeah, that are mirrored in that. And if they are, once again, I say, I'm, I very much am concerned. You know, one of the things, and again, we we don't push forward any particular theories here, but one of the reasons that, after sort of reading around it, that I understand it's so difficult for Congress to accept that there might be. Um, alien craft is that there's quite a lot of people who think they're demons, right? And they're not the only ones,
0: right? Well, with, within Congress or just yeah. anywhere,
1: right? Well, well, yeah, just just within anywhere, yeah. So it's
0: got some biblical connotations.
1: Well, well, not just not maybe biblical, but maybe these things are not visitors from outer space. Maybe they're supernatural beings, right? With another, you know, unknowable thing that they're trying to do. Because I just can't think of why you would do that to some men, you know, not twenty miles from here, in the seventies, and then stop doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just none of it makes any good sense.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Well, this all led me because I started thinking, Ben. We found quite a lot of stuff in the CIA archives, so I thought I'd try and go through the British equivalent to see if we might find some stuff
1: there oh good shout yeah
0: so i've been trailing through the british national archives now unlike the cia much of the documentation is not set for release to the public for a number of years but i did come across a file called air 2 colon ufo reports now this information in the file is from the 1960s and rather than a report, is a random selection of letters and documents relating to UFO encounters. And, I mean, it's mostly that. But then I came across, there were a few kind of news clippings in there, not many. But there was one um, clipping about one of the early UFO contact societies, or I guess UFO religions, that was formed right here in the UK. Now, it's a society we've mentioned on the podcast before when we interviewed Tommy Trelawney. Um, The Society was founded by a man called Dr George King in the 1950s after he claimed he was contacted by an extraterrestrial intelligence known as Aetherius. Yes. So in this government file, I came across a news clipping that was published in the Guardian newspaper on the 15th of November in 1965. The title of the article is Friends in Flying Saucers. Nice. Nice and it does discuss the Aetherius Society. The article says, Only about 36 Earth persons seized the opportunity in Barnsley at the weekend of hearing the messages from highly advanced intelligences in outer space, as relayed through the planet's primary terrestrial channel, which happens to be the larynxes of Dr George King. According to the Aetherius Society, which arranged this demonstration, These intelligences from outer space cause vibrations in Dr King's larynxes. The message emerging is not strictly speaking in Dr King's voice. It is English simply because the brain, or receiving set, and larynx belong to an Englishman. Now, if you're thinking I'd like to hear what that
1: sounds like, Ben. I definitely want to hear what that sounds like. Well, I have a
0: short clip from an interview Dr King did with the BBC in 1958 where he channels an alien being from Venus. Have a listen. Good evening.
1: Good evening. My dear friend, your name is? I am known as Aetherius. Where do you come from? The planet Venus. Where are you speaking from now? I'm sorry, my dear friend, I cannot answer that question for you. I had wondered simply whether you were in a vehicle of some kind, a spaceship described by Mr. King when he was talking to me, or whether you were in your normal abode. But you can't tell me that? Uh, No. You do travel normally in what Mr. King has described as flying saucers when you move about space, do you? Yes, that is quite correct. We have indeed been visiting this Earth of yours for some 18 million of your Earth years. Well, I do enjoy the cut-glass English that this uh, I mean, alien appears to be able to uh, That is so British, speak with. isn't it? It really is, it really is and um it also it's um so this is kind of the reason we were speaking to Tommy about it was this was the idea was that this might have been a sort of a prototype for the voice that came across the southern counties uh transmitter yes quite during right. the the alien um transmit the so-called alien transmission the takeover. And, yeah, yeah the takeover yeah, yeah yeah um and i could see why but um the performance is extraordinary i particularly like the glasses Yes. He's wearing, like, blinding glasses.
0: Yeah, I think he put... I mean, you probably... You can't see that on the podcast, but he, he puts these weird... They're almost like skiers' glasses on, aren't they? Goggles.
1: Yeah, completely black. As if someone's going to be giving him some information that helps him, like, pretend to channel an alien. Anyway, yeah.
0: Well, if we ret- we return to the Guardian article from 1965, it goes on to say... The Aetherius Society believes that flying saucers are real and their friendly occupants are giving vital information and guidance to mankind. Barnsley, on a Saturday night, it says in the article, when any saucer that fly are not usually extraterrestrial, (laughs) seems an unlikely setting for cosmic correspondence. But Miss Hazel Goldborough, the area organiser for the society, says there is a small but flourishing group of members in the town She's planning monthly meetings in Leeds, Huddersfield, and Barnsley for the playing of tape recordings of voices from outer space as issuing from Dr. King's larynxes. Mr. Michael Park, a committee member of the London headquarters of the Society, said yesterday that Dr. King heard his first extraterrestrial message in 1954. Now, as a chairman of the Society, he is chiefly used as a channel for messaging from aetherius an advanced intelligence from Venus and Mars Sector 6, a Martian intelligence. The voices of the Venusians, said Mr Park, is totally different in tonal quality from that of Mars six, Sector 6.
1: Of course it is.
0: Now, I can't work out why a clipping of that saw is in the file, Um, as the file, like I said, it's primarily UFO sighting reports and then the MOD response to the reports and inquiries.
1: So I don't know why it's there. Maybe just to provide background and colour. Yeah, maybe,
0: maybe. Um, I'm not going to go through the reports of sightings in the Ministry of Defence files because there are very few that go into great detail. There are some quite, I don't know, there's some ones that, again, feel very British and kind of... I don't know. Touch me a little bit. There's some fascinating ones. Let me give you an example. Um, there was a letter to the Ministry of Defence from members of the public, uh, from a group of residents in Kensington in London, written on the second of July, 1965. Just says, "Dear sir, we wish to write to you regarding a lighted foreign object moving in an easterly direction." at 12.12am on Friday the 2nd of July 1965, north of Brompton Road. We telephoned the Meteorological Society, who'd received many similar calls and advised us to write to you. We should be very grateful if you would give us any further information concerning this object. Yours faithfully, Judith Bryce, Brenda Schult and Margaret Dale.
1: And this would be the reason why MUFON formed, I guess, because where do you go? Well... When you look at the
0: letter, there's some really interesting handwritten notes on it from the Ministry of Defence. Oh, really? Yeah. They've circled the time uh, and the note says, do they mean a.m. or p.m.?
1: Oh, so someone did take it seriously.
0: Yeah. And then there's another thing that says insufficient info for valid assessment if early morning, probably a satellite.
1: Mm,
0: Now, what's interesting, Ben, when you go through these files in the 1960s, you come across many letters responding to public inquiries about UFO incidents. And they follow the theme that is pretty consistent to Ministry of Defence letters we've seen before, like the ones from Nick Pope in the 90s. You know, the ones that say the Ministry of Defence investigates reports of unidentified flying objects solely to the extent that is concerned with the air defence of the United Kingdom. Oh, yeah. That's just the classic standard response, right? But go through the files, you realise there was some investigation going on of reports from official sources and the public in the 60s, and there were many replies being sent back to the public who'd written in, who weren't getting that stock message. And Right. Do they include any of those? Yeah, they're, they're all in there, but they are, you know, you saw... Likely you saw a satellite or there was some military
1: aircraft at that time. Oh, okay.
0: So those MOD letters do provide an answer to what some people have felt they'd seen rather than the stock response. So I suddenly at this point, I, I don't know if it's the I want to believe part of me, Ben, but I thought, oh, this is a gotcha moment. Because I suddenly thought that when the Ministry of Defence has a rational explanation, certainly in the 60s, they told the public what it was, satellite, it was Venus, it was a military aircraft. But when something seems more like a, I don't know, a genuine UFO, as we'd call it, the MOD would send out the we don't investigate letter. Uh. Because,
1: you know, maybe it was a genuine case. So this is obviously the days before Nick Pope. Yeah, yeah. So they, I guess the, the, the UFO desk starts after this time. Yeah.
0: Now, that was my first reaction. I've got them. This is it. But I guess then a more sceptical part of me kicked in, and I went, well, if the MOD knew what it was, they told the people who'd written in. So they told them it was Venus or whatever or a, a military craft. I think you could say the Don't Investigate letter goes to those where they do a bit of a preliminary investigation and can't progress it due to a lack of information or evidence. So Mm -hmm. it's one of those two things. At first I thought, this is it, I've cracked it, and then was like, well, actually you could look at it from a different point of view. But I did feel that there was a different attitude from the American and British military to the UFO phenomena by reading you know because reading files from both certainly in the 60s i didn't feel there was a vibe of deliberate disinformation coming from these british files the files seemed straight up practical to the point um i guess very british i
1: guess (laughs) very british (laughs) and where where do they actually go to is it core mod or is it filing dales or yeah, Does it say? It doesn't say. Some, some of them are... There's
0: bits in the files that come from politicians who've been asked by the constituents and some where people... Oh, nice, yeah. ...ones where people have just written into the MOD directly. I mean, there's there's a lot in there, but it, it's not collated. It's not like a report. It's just these random letters and responses. But, you know, I... I, I, I certainly they were investigating them to some level you know whether if they were whether you go with the, they were serious incidents so they sent out the we don't investigate letter or they just didn't investigate because there wasn't enough information to take it any further depends on your perspective but it seemed very different to a kind of
1: american disinformation approach certainly back then and there was nothing in there that made you sort of um stick your ears up there was nothing extraordinary it was more like it was just lights in the sky weird things nobody was like writing in saying you know my auntie doris went for three days to venus yeah
0: i mean to be honest i i've i've only scanned it to a certain degree there's so much in there and unlike the american cia archives you can't search by topic you've literally got to click on each image or each number and see what it is so it's quite a laborious process but I think I will go back to it um, and have a look in a bit more detail. But it was just that pattern of, well, they do investigate, and if they know it's something that they can explain, they were sending letters out even to the public to say, yeah, no, you probably saw a satellite, or you probably saw Venus, or you probably saw this.
1: Yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, I'd love to know, um, what I, I mean... I mean, Nick Pope has always said there wasn't a a disinformation campaign, but he didn't know everything. Yeah. So I I guess whoever is responding to this is operating in a similar vein. And there must have been a point where they were like, well, you know, these people who are employed to do something else are being sidelined for something. And then you almost see it, I mean, I might might be wrong, but you could argue it feels like they mechanised the customer service by bringing nick pope in whereas another bit maybe knows what's going on and uses it as a decent cover but we you know at speculation i can not possibly know well it's
0: interesting you say that because i was i started thinking a lot about nick pope obviously when i was going through the files and it's like everybody just asks him about ufo cases and things like that i was thinking i'm quite interested to know procedurally how it works and the history of how you think it may have changed, because you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's the same in the nineties as it was in the sixties. But was there a change? Why was there a change? Just like you're saying, is it operational? This is all taking up too much time, and we can't investigate anything. Could be as simple as that, rather than some big conspiracy.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I agree, um, and it. But it starts with these little. I I saw a thing, and then I guess presumably they become more numerous. Did you get any idea? Is it just select ones that were in there?
0: Yeah, well, it's quite random in terms of timeline. They're not even in date order, so you would have to kind of almost go through, print them all out, and there's 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 hundreds of documents in there, so much more to explore. We we got we got very excited when we started delving in the CIA archives. I think the British ones have got some interesting stuff. The problem is you have to go back kind of earlier than you would on the American because a lot of them are still classified till. So I came across some quite interesting titles and clicked on it and it was said this this is not available until 2045, do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, I do, I do. Interesting, very interesting. Oh, well, thank you, that is brilliant. I particularly um, like uh, the idea of, a Venusian speaking with a perfect, perfect guess. Queens It's all like BBC English.
0: Yeah, and I, I like the way... I mean, I'm not saying he wasn't channelling a Venusian, but if he wasn't, I like the way he kind of... His weird intonation did make it stranger than it should be with that perfect English accent.
1: <laughs> did a bit. <laughs> Although, I mean... <sighs> Orville the Duck had a strange intonation. That was definitely a man. Yeah, that's true. I say a man, he might have been a Venusian. (laughs) Yeah, you've spoiled that for me. You really (laughs) (laughs) have. It was a real duck, it's fine. Well,
0: the other thing I thought, and I guess they must have an answer to it. So the Aetherius Society, uh, he was basically saying back then that these creatures are from Venus and Mars. And I don't know if they still hold that view now they're still going there's still a kind of ufo religion i don't know how they explained that one away i mean maybe they say it was all a cover and that's what i'd probably say you know they were saying they were from venus because we could understand it a little bit better than when they're really from i guess you can get round it can't
1: you i wonder if these days it's there'll be lawyers i wonder if these days it's more about the personality
0: yeah yeah
1: Wonderful, very interesting. Let's keep our very British eyes in our very British skies. I'm
0: slightly worried about you driving home in the dark now because on the roads where there was all this encounters, although it will make a good episode for next week, so check it out. It
1: will, but there's that new 20-mile-an-hour <laughs> road between your house and my house. If yeah. they lift me up and take me over the top of that, I'll be very, very happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that is tedious. Yeah,
0: no, it's quite tedious. Or well, maybe
1: they'll just give up because it's too slow. I'm not following him, he's too bloody slow. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, whilst we've been speaking, we've had a Sherlock update. Oh,
0: God, I've got to get me Get Bro, the violin. Go, whoa, oh, you
1: can do it this week. I was rubbish last week. I oh, know, I quite liked your play. Hold on, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Here we go. Excellent. So, it was from Nicola. So, Nicola, who came with us, the Ghost Hunting. Oh, yeah. She said, um, adding to the Holmes task, I'd like it's a task. It's more of an experiment, but yes, the task. Taking it very seriously, like a studious person. My mum booked a surprise trip around London yesterday, and guess where we started our evening? Baker Street. The Sherlock Holmes pub. Ah. (laughs) That's funny, because we did. I think when we launched the top
0: project, we said, you know, let's know if you're ever in the Sherlock Holmes pub. So this is Nicola who was came with us for the Halloween special when That's we spent the right. night in the Swan. Yes, she
1: just she didn't know she was going there. She just no. Out. Wow, that is weird. It is weird. It is. Um, I've been there. They could do a lot more with it. Is all I'm saying. But okay. But great. That's perfect. Good. We're getting closer to the man. Uh, Kath has seen. A oh, yeah, because we had the deer stalker last week. We had the we? Deer stalker. We've got uh, our other listener who saw the man. Yes. The Paranormal Investigators. Yeah. And um, now we've got the Sherlock Holmes pub. If we put them all together, we've got an office, the <laughs> clothing, and yeah. the man. Yeah. <laughs> we just have to assemble him.
0: Yeah. It feels like we're getting somewhere,
1: I think. It does feel like we're getting somewhere.
0: Well, if you'd like to um, keep this... TQM Tulpa project to make Sherlock Holmes real going you know I guess we started this off by saying just have a little think about Sherlock for you know four or five minutes if you've got some spare time and then uh, watch the film watch the film and then work out whether you know anything weird happens to you that is Sherlock related either coincidence is sightings or yeah
1: just suddenly being taken to the Sherlock Holmes pub
0: let us know
1: I was in the bookshop earlier I don't think it's a real type of thing but I walked through the children's section to get to the paranormal section I was after a specific book I couldn't find it but there's something in there called Sherlock Bones parents amongst you might know what that is I've no idea what no, that is I but that is. um I, I'm not counting it but um yeah it sounds like it could be a dog version of. Sherlock I think Holmes. it might be a dog version yeah, yeah. I yeah. bet it's a bloodhound too, yeah. in a deer stalker. Oh, well, that's a bit gruesome. Well, that was what it, if you remember Pigeon Street. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah there was um, Watson was the dog, yes. who was a bloodhound, and his owner had a deer stalker. There you go. Yeah, for fans of uh, late seventies, uh, early eighties television in the UK,
0: we'd be very seventies today. Um, very seventies. Well, look, thank you all for listening. We will be back next week with. More paranormal on the quantum mechanics.
1: Join us then. Take care and see you then. Bye bye. Bye. bye.
0: Quantum Mechanics